Well, again, we want to go to the throne of our Lord and Savior and offer up praises and petitions. Um, we have uh, many things to be thankful for. Uh, we're extremely blessed uh, in this congregation and in this country, even with all of our problems. So um, we want to thank God for many of these things. Uh, on my list, we want to continue to pray for Micah and his job situation. I pray that God would uh, open up doors that uh, he might be with us on the Lord's Day. Uh, I want to continue to pray for uh, Kelsey and uh, Tim uh, with regard to their migraine headaches. Uh, Tim has got, Tim Tennis has got some surgery coming up, so we want to pray on behalf of that. And we give praise that Carlos's eye is better, hopefully, one of them. Okay. And uh, the other one is uh, going to be done tomorrow. So he's got surgery tomorrow. How are you doing with the uh, eye drops? Are you ma managing those okay? Sure. Nothing. Really? Man, I had, I think, two or three eye drops. I had to do two or three times a day. Okay. Well, good for you. Um, <clears throat> want to keep in mind the Pickin family and the, their difficult situation. And if you see um, if you see Will Pickin around, uh, thank him. I mean, <clears throat> he spent a large part of yesterday out there picking up trash and garbage and <laughs> around the church. And uh, he actually had bags and bags of leaves. There are still leaves out there, but they keep blowing in from the neighborhood. So, but. Uh, Encourage him if you see him around and thank him for his efforts. Um, Cliff's mother, Myrna, how's she doing? Answer to prayer. If she's coming home, we pray that uh, the Lord would provide uh, patience and uh, loving kindness to uh, take care of her. Um, Want to remember um, Peggy uh, with, with the cancer situation. Um, ask that God would intervene in her life. We have um, again uh, Pastor Earl out west in Montana. Asking God to uh, show him what uh, he would have in store for his life now that he's lost his wife. So we pray for that situation. We've got <clears throat> our fellow deacon in the back there. His pneumonia seems to be clearing up, so Wade's uh, offering a praise for that. Uh, Tricia, how you feeling? All right. So that's an answer to our prayer. Okay. And Donna Perry, again, um, we were going to pray on her behalf as well. So any other uh, prayer requests or praises you might have? Yeah. Yeah, we'll be traveling to southern Georgia. We're going to, a year later, we're going to try it again. And uh, so we're going to take off Wednesday, 
and uh, be back hopefully the following Wednesday. Anything else? Okay. We'll take these things before our Lord in prayer and uh, ask him to intervene in a, in a special way. Um, Pastor, would you lead us in prayer, please? Yeah. Yeah, the one that lost the. Yeah, her dad. For those of you who are coming up from the basement, um, we are studying in the book of Judges, and we're finally coming to the end of Samson's judgeship. Uh, so today is going to be divided up into two sections. We're going to come to the end of Samson, and then uh, we're going to do an introduction into uh, basically the, the rest of the book. So that's the plan. We'll see how it all works out. Um, we have left Samson uh, grinding in the uh, mill. Um, grinding wheat uh, was a big um, uh, labor-intensive, time-consuming effort that had to be done um, by the um, women in the families. And uh, as the cities grew larger, they would have a mill uh, that would uh, do a lot of the grinding, uh, and it was usually done by slave labor, 
And that's why Samson ends up here in this mill grinding wheat for the Philistines. He's been blinded as part of retribution for what he has supposedly done to the Philistines. And so now the Philistines are in Gaza, which has been in the news a lot lately. And they are gathering together at their temple for a celebration, the temple or house of Dagon, their god. And so in the midst of this celebration, they call for Samson to come up. And they were going to make fun of him, ridicule him, tease him. And if you think about it, there are some similarities here to Jesus Christ in that during his imprisonment and his arrest, he was blindfolded, he was struck, he was spit on, he was abused. And we see a similar thing here with God's anointed one and Samson going through a similar situation. So turn to chapter 16 in the book of Judges, chapter 16, and we'll pick up at verse 25. 16 and verse 25. <clears throat> verse 25, and it so happened when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that we may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he made sport before them. And they made him stand between the pillars. So like I said, they, they brought him up to uh, make fun of him uh, in his blindness. And Samson was put between the pillars, uh, the main pillars of the temple. Now, <clears throat> the temples in the ancient world uh, were generally symbolic uh, they were symbolic uh, models of the way people viewed the world around them. Um, these pillars were symbols of the might of their God upholding um, their world. And these temples uh, had a lot of the symbolism in them to translate to their thoughts and their beliefs in their religion. And if, when you think about it, the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Covenant there was a lot of symbolism there. God was very specific on what he wanted in his temple, in his uh, tabernacle, and why it was done in a certain way uh, to symbolize who he was. Now, the ancients knew that the world was round. This fallacy that Columbus proved the world was round is, is a fallacy because the Greeks already had figured out the circumference of the world. Um, they already knew that before long, uh, before Columbus. And any seafaring nation that dealt in trade on the water knew the world was round when they watched their ship go off and got smaller and smaller and disappear. And when that ship would come back, it started as a dot and got larger and larger, it came back. So they already knew that the world was round. So this idea of the pillars holding up the world they knew was just symbolic of um, uh, their God 
uh, preserving their civilization. Now, on top of the temple was often a garden. In this part of the country, in the Middle East, um, that was where you could pick up a cool breeze. Um, if you remember, Rahab hid the spies on the rooftop of her house. Um, I think it was Peter that was up on the rooftop, and uh, God spoke to him up there. So this idea of the rooftop and people living up there or existing up there is not unusual for that uh, location of the world. Uh, in the Temple of Dagon, the, the central pillars were like the arms of, of their god holding up the Philistine world, um, symbolically, of course. So the Philistines had a great confidence in the might of their god, and they were congregated on this rooftop to, uh, for this religious celebration, um, certain that Dagon will hold them uh, and preserve them. So this is the picture I want you to have in your mind as we continue on. It, it helps to fully understand uh, what's going to happen next in this passage. I don't know if you can hit the focus. See the focus button up there? At the black bar at the top. Does it help? I don't know. There you go. All right. Verse 26. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars of which the house rests, that I may learn lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Master Lord, Please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, just this time, O oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on the house and rested and braced himself against them, the one on the right hand and the other on, with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistine. And he bent with strength so that he, uh, so the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed in his life. Scripture tells us here that Samson positioned himself between the two central pillars. And when he pulled them down, he symbolically pulled down the Philistine culture, pulled down the Philistine civilization, and in effect uh, pulled down their god uh, who did not protect them. We see here in scripture that the five Philistine lords that uh, paid off uh, Delilah uh, were among them, and they were killed. And so that was the uh, source of their leadership. That was the source of their culture. Um, and as we have seen in the past, uh, in Genesis, where we're told that the head of the serpent will be crushed, we see here these uh, evil people who are serving Satan 
had their heads crushed with a stone. And more than likely, the chief priests of the temple were present as well. It was a religious ceremony, a festival. And so again, we see the destruction, the crushing of the heads of the priests. And we see the one true living God putting down his enemies, destroying them. But uh, unlike previous judges, Israel was not completely delivered at the death of their judge. I said at the beginning when we started studying Samson that uh, his deliverance, his judgeship was just the beginning of the deliverance. It was not going to be the full and, and complete uh, culmination of their deliverance. There were many more than 3,000 people present, for the house was full, and then there was 3,000 people on the roof. Uh, it must have been a very large temple uh, to have that many people on the roof. So having read this, um, there are always people who call into the accuracy, historical accuracy, of the biblical account. And the narrative of Samson and pulling down the temple has long been debated among many scholars. And some scholars didn't want to tread it. They didn't say anything about, uh, uh, they didn't want to take one position or the other. But basically, there are some people who believe in the biblical account, and there are some people who do not. Um, so let me offer you some insight onto the, those arguments. Um, John L. McKenzie uh, typifies the view that this was just um, a folktale. This is what he had to say, quote, the historical quality of historic tales is always low. This is easy to see in Samson. A palace or temple which could support several thousand people on its roof, supported by just two central pillars, separated by a man's arm's length, never existed. The world in which Samson lives is real, even if his feats of strength are not. So in other words, Mackenzie sees the stories of Samson's power and might as exaggerated popular tales of the day. And he believes that these tales were circulated during the time of the Philistines um, to give Israel hope, um, to encourage them. Um, so the stories of the strength of Samson were meant to have been a source of religious hope uh, for Israel and to kind of bolster their national spirit against the Philistines. On the other hand, we have Dr. Bryant Wood, who advocates an opposing view. He points out that during a 1972 excavation, uh, the first Philistine temple ever to be found uh, was brought to light at uh, just north of Tel Aviv. Um, this temple is composed of an antechamber and main hall 
the measurements of which are about 18 and a half feet by 23 and a half feet. It is a room whose roof was originally supported by two wooden pillars set on round, well-made stone bases and placed along a center axis. So this is a smaller one. You can see the two wooden posts in the middle there. There has been two temples that have been discovered of temples of Dagon, and they both are based on the same architectural scheme, the two central posts. And, of course, this one is a much smaller one. We're talking about the temple at Gaza here. And since there's a lot of fighting going on in the middle of Gaza right now, I don't know, maybe the Israeli army will uncover it, but they haven't had the city is setting on this temple that we're talking about here from the Book of Judges. So there's not any excavation going on in that behalf. Organization called Biblical Archaeology has looked into both of these arguments and come to some conclusions. Again, we see the temple here. There's the stone pillars that the wooden post was set on, about an, a man's arm's length in between. This is the conclusion of the biblical archaeology group. First, it is clear that the linguistic evidence supports the side of the debate that sees the temple scene as historical, as typified by Dr. Bryant Wood. So they were looking into the linguistic, the, the language of the uh, scripture here. And first of all, looking at that, and they said this is more supportive of the position of, of Dr. Wood. Scholars such as J.L. McKenzie, who reject any historical components in the Samson narratives, tend to follow the line of thought that presumes that the Samson narratives originated as a profane folktale. Archaeological discoveries such as those at Tel Aviv are, being, are beginning to call such sweeping presuppositions into question. So he says, based on the archaeological evidence, um, we're finding that the biblical narrative is uh, once again proven to be closer to accurate than uh, Mackenzie's point of view. Since it was a larger temple, this was beginning what some of the uh, concepts were, where you could see the rooftop where they, they could put 3,000 people on. Again, the pillars representing the strength of their God, holding up the, uh, their world. Um, so they <coughs> believe that the, the temple at Gaza would probably look more something like this. And <coughs> when the pillars are... Uh, main pillars are pushed down, you get the domino effect where all these other pillars start crashing and falling apart and uh, destroying the temple and the people. They go on, uh, biblical archaeology says, secondly, it seems very likely that the story of the destruction of Gaza temple was originated by an actual eyewitness or a narrator who lived in close proximity with the events. Uh, some people even said that it might have been the boy that led Samson uh, to the pillars, um, probably a slave and therefore probably a, a Hebrew uh, slave, but 
we're just conjecture there. We don't know for sure. Looking at the scripture, the Hebrew terms that constitute the key actions, Samson bent powerfully and the temple fell, all contain connotations of violent power. Moreover, the actions that are described are completely consistent with the findings at Tel Aviv. According to the excavated findings, the wooden pillars were held in place by the weight of the temple. To dislodge and set the pillars in motion would demand an immense surge of power. The term uh, denoting the collapse of the temple components uh, complements this description as it is used in the reference to the result of the violent act that brings about damage, destruction, and death. And their third finding was this. The combination of the findings of the uh, temple at Tel Aviv and the specific wording of the text describing Samson's final act validates the historical evidence of the temple tradition, if, if not the entire uh, Samson narrative. The destruction of the temple at Tel Aviv was, has been dated to the early 10th century BC. Such a dating is consistent with the rise and fall of the Philistine power as they had a period of ascendancy before the monarchy and were defeated by David in the 11th century BC. Because this temple account seems to have been generated by an eyewitness to the event, Samson could not have been the creation of storytellers or later biblical authors. Therefore, it suggests that Mackenzie's assessment was in error and the world in which Samson lived was real and so was his strength. So if you want to investigate that a little bit more, biblicalarchaeology.org um, is where you can find more information on that. So getting back to our main character here, a question arises uh, about Samson's prayer. Uh, was it a selfish prayer? Um, bear in mind that if you read Psalm 69, 20 through 27, David wrote that psalm, but there's some belief that this uh, were the words that Christ used upon the cross. And he also cried out uh, for uh, a defeat of his enemies from the cross, if, if, if we can uh, believe that those are his words. Samson does indeed phrase his prayer in terms of vengeance, for his two eyes. But you, I use the term look, you have to look at it from his point of view, even though he doesn't have any eyes. Um, he is God's anointed one. He's God's chosen one at this time. He's the judge, and he's using a standard consistent with what he's used in the past, and that is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so it sounds to be uh, selfish, and perhaps it is, but he's also using God's perfect standard of justice here. He was, Isra he was Israel's Messiah. They had blinded, and Samson knew that there had to be a price paid for attacking the Lord's anointed one. So a careful study of verse 30 
uh, brings out that Samson's spiritual strength had returned and that Samson used all of this strength in pulling down the temple. He asked to die with the Philistine. Uh, again, this is a type of foreshadowing that the Israel's true Messiah would have to die himself in order to effectively destroy and dis uh, kill his enemies. So Christ on the cross, his death, uh, was the victory over Satan. Uh, it was sealed with his resurrection. We also see that he killed more than, at this time than in any other time in his career. Uh, the greatest and most uh, def uh, definitive victory came about at his death. And again, um, it's a picture of Christ's victory at the cross at his death. Verse 31. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Estothron, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel 20 years. In conclusion, you could say that um, Samson was the ultimate uh, member of the tribe of Dan. He symbolized what Genesis 49 through 16, eight, uh, 16 and 18 said, that Dan would judge his people, and Dan would be like a serpent in the way, striking without warning. And certainly we would say that typified Samson's uh, role as judge. And Deuteronomy 33:22 said that Dan would see, uh, be a lion that leaps out of the underground and pounces on his prey. And it would seem that it would take somebody as strong as the lion to deal with the lion. And we saw that in Samson when he began his career as a judge by killing a lion. In general, I think we could say that there are uh, three, three basic things that um, the people of Israel and, and us today could draw from some of this uh, um, scripture. Uh, first thing that they would learn is that <clears throat> the strongest man will fall uh, if he goes chasing after the things in the godless culture. Uh, Samson, we saw the decline as he sought after uh, the godless culture of the Philistines, uh, he continued to decline, even though he knew it was wrong, because he, he earlier on, when he made the, uh, married the Philistine girl, uh, he knew what the people were like. He knew what the culture was like. But he, he strayed from, away from God. So we can see that no matter how strong you are, if you think you can resist these uh, godless uh, cultures, uh, you're wrong. Second, uh, the involvement with godless culture would destroy their lives and would blind them uh, and render them powerless uh, to conduct their life uh, in the light of God. They would be blinded to the things of God uh, and God would render them powerless as a result. 
And finally, the third thing, that a more perfect Messiah would be needed if Israel was to be fully delivered and finally delivered uh, from their sin and their bondage. Uh, what was needed was a deliverer who would be both morally pure and also omnipotent. So that brings to the end of um, uh, Samson. Any thoughts, comments, questions about this part of the scripture? Yeah. We are sinful, weak people, and God uses people like Samson, and he uses people like us. Uh, we don't know why he does, but he does. He's got his plan, but he uses us just like the weakness in Samson, just like the weakness in our lives, God uses us. Anything else? Yeah. brings him down. Yeah. Well, this <clears throat> sets the stage for us to uh, look at the last, what I would call, section of the book of Judges, uh, beginning with verses, or chapters 17 and 18. <laughs> We arrive at uh, this point where some commentators um, call this uh, section from here to the end of, of Judges 
an appendix, appendices. Uh, some of you have had your appendices taken out, but uh, <coughs> um, the dictionary says the appendices is a collection uh, or of separate material at the end of a book or document. And so that's what we have here with these last chapters, a collection of material at the end of this book. And <clears throat> these chapters are divided into a couple of stories. And these stories happened earlier in the history of Israel. They're not in chronological order with the rest of the book of, of Judges. What these stories are, are basically an explanation of what happened and then why the book of Judges and all the chaos that ensued occurred. So this is kind of like a, a prequel, prequel to what went on before the book of Judges. And because of these things, we, they suffered, the people suffered through the chaos of the book of Judges. Uh, basically, it talks about uh, uh, two aspects, the social aspect and the religious chaos uh, that was uh, taking place. And one verse that sticks out through the rest of this study is that in those days Israel had no king and everybody did as he saw fit. So <clears throat> that's the way it was. At the, is again, a prequel. This is what was happening at the beginning of the book of Judges. There was no king. And by king here, the, the scripture is referring to God. Uh, Israel has rejected God as their king. God was going to rule over them and, and lead them and, and establish, and they rejected that. And so they tried to do everything uh, as they saw fit. And when that happens, when you try to live uh, as if there's no king, we see a couple things going on. We will take our own false religion, which we've seen here uh, so many times that... Uh, the Israelites chase after false gods. They chase after um, anything but, but their Lord and Savior, uh, the Holy God. We will reject God's plan and make our own. Uh, we'll do it on our own strength. We'll take care of it ourselves. We don't need God. And we'll see some gross wickedness. And we have, through our study of judges, we've seen a lot of wickedness and, uh, take place. And we will only seek God in emergencies. Um, and we will create more problems for ourselves. And that's what happened in the book of Judges. This is, uh, again, the prequel of what was caused all of this chaos. And this is true to us today. Our culture and our people are, are doing the same thing. We're making false religions. We're seeking after uh, godless culture. We're making more problems for ourselves. We're not allowing God to lead us. We're not allowing God to be our king and to rule over us. So we reach the climax of the uh, passage of Judges, uh, which can be summed up 
basically fathers and mothers of Israel or America fought, fail in their tasks, uh, their biblical tasks, and all things go wrong. And also the other thing that uh, we'll look at here in, the, in this section is that uh, when the Levites or religious leaders fail to lead as the true husband of the people of the Bi uh, um, or Israel, um, God's bride, uh, then the people are go seeking after other things to replace their weak leadership. So those two things, the, the crumbling of the family, parents not teaching the kids about God, and then the religious leaders uh, abdicating uh, their role and uh, not fulfilling it. So that's what these narratives are, are basically about, and this is what caused all the chaos in the book of Judges. It was the job of the Levites to manifest God's husbandly attention to his bride. And just as an ignored woman may seek attention elsewhere, so Israel sought other lovers as well. Uh, Israel was in sin, but it was the Levites who were in greater sin. It's just like Adam in the garden. Um, Eve took the, was tempted and she took the fruit but it, Adam bore the responsibility. He was standing right there next to her. He did not perform his husbandly duties. And that's the role that uh, is portrayed here with the, the Levites. So the Lord was to be the husband. He was to be the king. And the people rejected that. But <clears throat> Levi uh, failed to make his presence manifest. He failed to tell the people. They failed to tell the people about the uh, one true living God. So thus, uh, the appendices um, say five times that there is no king in Israel. So the first appendix shows the consequences of this failure in the area of worship. And the second probes the consequences in the area of social life. So remember when we started this study, the overall structure we tried to, to follow uh, at the beginning of our study was that God gives a command or promise. Man either obeys or disobeys the command or promise. And then God evaluates man's actions with blessings or judgments. So the command and promise from God centers in two areas. One is the second commandment. Uh, forbidding the worship of God through graven images. Now there's a lot of debate on this, um, and you may have just as strong arguments as, as anybody else about this, but I personally uh, don't believe the Second Commandment prohibits religious art. And I really don't believe it uh, commands us to hang religious art in uh, places of worship. I think we've got examples of it in here. <clears throat> but what it does do, it does forbid us from bowing down to these images and using them as a magical means to communicate 
and not only communicate, but to manipulate God, that it does pro uh, prohibit. So thus, by extension, it forbids the erection of any competitive place of worship, at least during the Old Covenant. And there's only one mediator between God and man, and he's the very image of God himself, his son. Any other mediator is false. So using images, graven images, to mediate is a violation of the second commandment. So that's command laid down. The other area of command or promise has to do with the Levites. They were to be priests or guardians of Israel. When they failed in their task, chaos resulted. This passage uh, doesn't give ex or gives explicit evaluation or judgment uh, from the Lord because the entire book of Judges is God's judgment against this uh, breaking of this commandment uh, or, or promise. So it's not specifically laid out here, but we see it continuously through the book of Judges, God evaluating man's, uh, especially the Levite uh, call to duty. So because of the failure, the Levites, Israel, came under judgment time and time again. So, chapter 17. Uh, <clears throat> this story is a parody. Um, a parody is something that you make fun of or uh, provide a lesson in a... In a uh, different way. Um, I have a half-brother that was a senior editor at Mad Magazine, if you ever picked that up. That whole magazine is a parody. It takes reality and kind of makes fun of it. Uh, and, um, today we have on the line with the Babylon Bee, and some people say Saturday Night Live is all a parody on, on life. And so that's what these stories are. They're meant to be parodies uh, of the story, particularly of the establishment of true religion at, uh, at the exodus from Egypt. So it has all the elements of true religious worship, but it's been perverted uh, in these stories. So virtually every detail found uh, in the establishment of true religion coming out of Egypt uh, is found here, but again, it's been perverted parody has been played upon it. So verse 1, chapter 17. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. 
So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made it into a graven image and a molten image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a house of gods and he made an ephod and a teraphim and consecrated one of his sons and that he might become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did was right in his own eyes. Well, just as Samson had been betrayed for 1,100 pieces of silver, we see here Lord God being betrayed for the same price. Rejecting God, setting up my own gods. And this betrayal is basically the fundamental thing that happened and caused all the chaos um, throughout the book of Judges. When Micah stole the silver from his mother, she cursed the thief. Uh, she pretty well knew who had taken it, and so she made sure to tell Micah about the curse. And it probably went something like this, taken from Le Leviticus 5.1. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public order to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his punishment. So this is a curse. If, if you know something and you don't say anything about it, then you receive that punishment. So she's putting that curse on her son, saying, you know, um, you're well aware of it, and uh, so you will receive that punishment. So afraid he, uh, he returned, uh, afraid of this curse, he returned the money to her, and she uh, undid the curse by saying that she wanted the Lord to bless him at the end of uh, verse 2. Note what Micah did here. He just returned the silver. According to Leviticus, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, there's more to it than that. Um, he's required to make restitution. Uh, he's required to add one-fifth of the total amount that was stolen and offer a trespass offering. Uh, again, the restitution was to satisfy the person who had been harmed or robbed, and the fat, uh, sacrifice was to satisfy God. Micah ignores those things that he's required to do, and he ignores God completely. And we also see here that the mother led her son into idolatry. She did not teach him about the one true living God. She stands in contrast to Deborah, let's say, who represented the true mother of Israel. Um, this mother is a picture of, of the Israelite parent who fails to teach her child about the Lord and who brings Israel into sin. <clears throat> we had talked about this earlier in our study, how it seems like all the judges judged for a generation, and then Israel fell after a generation. That generation failed to teach their kids about the one true living God, and therefore they 
chased after uh, the sinless culture of the time, chased after other gods. We see that happening here. This, this is ex an explanation of uh, the entire country of Israel before Judges. She says that she will give 1,100 pieces of silver to Micah, but she only gives 200. And from this, we see that Micah's con covetousness was uh, learned from his mother. So every conceivable kind of idolatry is mentioned here, so we don't miss the point. There was graven images mentioned here, uh, which is a large statue covered with silver plate. There were molten images mentioned here, which are small, portable, solid uh, pieces of silver. And there was something called a teraphim uh, mentioned here. Uh, Teraphim was a small idol, little uh, statues that represented the heavenly hosts and that sat around the throne of God. Another perversion of the angels and departed spirits of men that sat around the throne of God. We also see that there was an ephod mentioned. We've already discussed that earlier in the study, which is a way uh, to answer, God to answer questions. So we see this false religion being established here. Verse 11. And the Levite agreed to live with... Oh, come back here. Uh, verse 7, I'm sorry. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was sojourning there... And since I'm running out of time, I'm not going to explore this any further. So we'll call an end to that and pick it up there next time we're together. Uh, we'll take a look at how the false priesthood gets established with this false religion. Any comments, thoughts as we close? Okay. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction, the clear direction that we should avoid godless pagan culture, that we should avoid uh, taking our eyes off of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for he is our true king, and we bow down in a humble adoration of him. Lord, we thank you that you have set up in your scripture uh, what we should do and how we should uh, walk, and we also see in your scripture uh, what will happen if we do not. So, Lord, may we be students of your scripture. May we uh, feast upon your word. So, Lord, we pray that you be with us in the after service, be with Micah as he preaches. We pray, Lord, that, uh, again, uh, your servant would uh, uh, share with us uh, the things of uh, needy to our heart and our soul. So, Lord God, bless us this day, the Sabbath day that you've given to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.